this is John with the Human Advancement Podcast, powered by Ruthless Performance. Today, I'm joined by Keith, our assistant strength and conditioning coach. And basically, what we're going to do today is talk about last-minute performance enhancement modalities for the championships season for swimmers. Uh, we're coming in on this fast. Here in Pennsylvania, we get basically the month of March as... Um, the whole championship month for swimmers. So it kind of alternates between the PIAA championship season and then the Y or the USA Swim championship season as well. So it's all kind of thrown in together at once. So there's there's a lot that we could talk about here and a, a whole bunch of different directions we could go. But ultimately what we're trying to do is shed some light on some strategies that swimmers and parents of swimmers can use to make sure that your athlete's performance is going to be as high as possible on the day of an important meet. Now, between the whole season, we've invested so much time in making a better, faster swimmer. And then on top of that, the financial resources of investing in these tech suits, which swimmers tend to use for only one or two or maybe even three championship meets which could run upwards of a few hundred dollars. So when we're trying to get all the variables right, it's really important that you utilize this two to three week time period and really dig in and maximize your performance. So today we're just gonna talk about what exactly it means to maximize your performance in this crucial window. So I know Keith, you, you kind of come from a different world. You come from outside of, um, outside of, the swimming world, your your winter sport in high school and college was um, wrestling. Correct. Yeah. So um, I was never really involved with swimming until starting with ruthless performance, and um, it's kind of opened opened me up to a new uh, new world of of athletics because with wrestling, it's sort of in the same aspect of swimming that there's a few weeks where you really have to peak with districts for wrestling because um, uh, with weight cuts and all that. But um, swimming, you have multiple events, which um, makes the, the peak a little different from, from wrestling. And like you said, with the YMCA and districts, how would, uh, so I have a question about like, how, how do you keep athletes in that peak performance range during um, district states and with the YMCA and USA uh, meets? The the short answer of it is that you can't. Unfortunately, what happens is kids try to sp spread themselves too thin. They try to have the best of all situations, and they try to be as good as they can be for PIAA districts. Then they try to have as good of times as they can for the y dis YMCA districts, and then they go into um, PIAA states, which is then followed by... YMCA states, which is followed by either regions or nationals. And what happens is kids that are too invested in multiple teams end up bombing out at the end of the season because they're trying to, they're trying to stay at, at, at a peak for too long. So one of the things that's kind of worth bringing up here is, is, this, is the idea of the taper. Most swimmers are aware that there is a taper. They just don't really necessarily understand what they're doing when they're tapering. But essentially, what um, from from your perspective, from the exercise science perspective, what we could the way to best view the taper is as a supercompensation phase. And what happens is 
for a lay audience out there, throughout the course of the swimming season, you're actually kind of getting beaten down further and further and further. You might be seeing some improvements throughout the throughout the in season, but a lot of those improvements that you're seeing are actually just basically from increasing your confidence and your confidence in the water, but actually your, your performance is going downhill because the volume of practice as it picks up or as the intensity of practice picks up, depending on what your training style is, what is actually happening is those muscles are getting weaker and weaker and weaker because they're not recovering to the best of their ability. And how could they? Because you're, but these kids are training six, seven days a week. And then on top of that, a lot of them are coming in here. So these kids are having, on top of their school workload, they're having, you know, maybe 10, 12, or even 14 practices a week. So it is a very rigorous season. And then what happens when we start getting into what we call the taper phase, and it varies from program to program, but ultimately what you see there is as the workload diminishes, the intensity of the efforts that these kids are putting in, in theory, is supposed to go up. So they're not doing as much work, but the work that they are doing needs to be super high quality. And that hones in on their ability to recover because their bodies are used to doing, you know, a very high amount of yardage or a very intense style of training. So when a lot of that intensity and when a lot of that yardage is removed, uh, muscle glycogen goes up, central nervous system is replenished a lot better than it is in season. Um, but you can only re really hold on to that for so long. Um, and the other side of that too is as what one thing that's definitely a paradox with swimming is when these swimmers are at their fastest for whatever meet they decide to taper for, it's actually when they're usually at their worst aerobic capacity because for the past week and a half, two weeks, their aerobic workload has gone down to next to none. So, and you know as well as I do that aerobic capacity drops rapidly. I mean, when you think if you come back from a vacation, your aerobic capacity isn't anywhere near as high as it was before you left. Um, so they have the speed and they have the specificity to do whatever their events are. But then beyond that, their workload and their work capacity is almost as bad as it was kind of going into the season. So these big tapers that a lot of kids are trying to manage, um, and then trying to hold that taper for a month, you're basically holding yourself at a month with very limited um, cardiorespiratory training. Um, so ultimately, performance goes down. What kids really need to do is pick a singular meet that they need to peak for. I mean, you can kind of come if you if you think you're a state level competitor, you need to kind of come down at the district level just to ensure that you know you're making the threshold to get into the state meet. But if you think the state meet is where you're going to do the best, that's what you need to be. That's essentially what you need to be training for. So um, somebody that's not really too familiar with the uh, with the sport of swimming. Now you have the YMCA districts. Is it regionals? There's a regionals and there is usually a regional meet, which is like a mid-Atlantic meet, and there's also a national meet. Um, but I think, I believe in YMCA, I don't know how it is now, and it's different with the USA Swimming too, but um, in some cases you don't need to do the regional meet. You you just need basically a, a time threshold. If you get the time, you're in. So so if I was a swimmer looking to, looking to taper for one of these meets and Stay on a state level swimmer in the in the PIAA ring. Would I would I rather 
taper for the PIAAs or for the YMCA? Well, I'm a PIAA coach, so I, I tend to put more emphasis on the PIAAs. Um, but a YMCA coach would probably say the same thing about YMCA. I think the YMCA thing is cool because it's kids that are tend to be more committed because they're doing outside the purview of the school. Um, but uh, I don't think it gets it. I don't think it holds as much legitimacy. Um, you know, it's. I think YMCA is a nonprofit institution, but um, a lot of times the national meet is kind of just a cash grab. They set their time standards relatively low and just kind of allow everyone to go in. Families make a vacation out of it. Kids say their kids are at nationals. Um, but it is a cool opportunity for kids to extend their swimming career. So some people place a priority on one versus the other, but ultimately that comes down to personal personal opinion. But I think if if your goal with this, as is most swimmers' goals with swimming, is to utilize these championship opportunities to get a better, um, get essentially better seed times and to be looked more favorably upon by collegiate coaches. You know, whether you're getting an amazing time in PIAA or in YMCA or USA Swim, I don't think those coaches care all that much. They just like to see fast numbers on the board. There's more more time in the water for the swimmers as well. This would be more comfortable. Right, but the only the other problem with that, though, is is essentially serving too many masters where you try to have, you know, essentially, like I was saying, up to six meets with multiple days of events where you're trying to peak for, and then ultimately all of it can end up being not great. Um, there are ways around that. If you come down from a really high work volume, it can work, but immediately after um, some of these championship meets, when, like before, after a district meet, when someone would wanna take off almost as a, um, almost just kind of as a, as a little mini vacation from what they just did, in reality, if kids are trying to make it through a large swimming season and a, lar a long postseason, championship season, they need to get right back in the water and start working their ass off to get that cardiorespiratory capacity really high again. And if they're not distant swimmers, um, just to get their, their speed back up and their, their turnover. So how would, uh, so when these swimmers come back in the pool, how would you, how would you start them back off? That's a that's a good question. I think everything should. It depends. It depends on the program because there are so many there are so many variations, and I like to let the swim coaches do whatever the swim coaches do. But the problem is when you're talking about um, when you're talking about this, you're talking about what could potentially be a swimmer going to their PIAA swim coach and then also going to their YMCA swim coach, um, and then when that happens there's too many too many cooks in the kitchen and um, ultimately the swimmers performance ends up getting um, is their their performance is is dig is it's completely diminished from what it should be um, what I would do is I would get them back in uh, right back to race pace training um, some work capacity stuff but ultimately just making sure that that aerobic capacity goes back up and isn't perpetually going down and down and down. Because with that super compensation phase, I mean, people could see this online, um, after a super compensation phase, ultimate performance begins to diminish immediately after the peak. Um, and that's, that's inevitable. Going, going off of that super compensation phase, um, 
these athletes are at their at their peak performance ideally now at, when they're at their peak performance there's also that higher risk of injury so um what are some mobility modalities or training modalities you like to um, implement to these swimmers when they're when they're at their peak phase right before competition yeah the, what what most coaches do at this point is they're doing a lot of race pace training where um turnover speed the shoulders doing the shoulders undergoing more degrees of uh basically more degrees of internal rotation than it, it is and faster than it usually does at any other point in the season so as these swimmers are getting faster that shoulder is doing more and more than it otherwise is imagine you know being a baseball pitcher and going from a 60 mile per hour pitch to an 80 mile per hour pitch um and then just put uh load on top of that against water and have it do stroke after stroke after stroke during training so um internal rotation is a huge problem one of the things i like to focus on a lot at this point in the season is stretching the lats stretching the thoracic spine um you know we're, we're fortunate that we train with the, a lot of these kids throughout the year but for some kids who haven't been doing much strength and conditioning training or any kind of dry land training to throw them on a pull-up bar now and to tell them to just hang there, which is a fantastic exercise, to tell them to do that now, you know, they could start getting too much um, delayed onset muscle soreness. So it could actually be counterintuitive to start adding things into kids' programs that aren't already exposed to it. So in short, anything you want to be doing now, you should have a baseline of knowing how an athlete is going to respond to it in the preseason and then kind of using the in-season almost using race days and conventional dual meets to figure out where a swimmer should be and what they should be doing. Because take something we, we get into in more detail, something like supplementation. If you were to give an athlete a supplement and um, have them take it for the first time the day of a district meet or a state meet, you don't know how they're going to respond to that. I mean, if the beta alanine content is too high, or caffeine content's too high, they get too much jitters, or with the beta alanine, they get that, that flush where they get itchy and everything. And if, if it's too much, that could, be, um, that could be an impediment to performance as opposed to actually being some kind of ergogenic aid. That's, that's sort of like um, talking about like creatine, creatine supplementation too, since there's so many different, I mean, you have different people that actually respond to it and others that, that do not. And, that's that's one thing that's going along with that, especially with with sprinters, and I see it a lot with wrestlers too, because you know wrestling is a lot of anaerobic based, you know, picking up, throwing a lot of muscle, a muscle wear and tear. Um, so creatine is a huge supplement that that they use, and a lot of these wrestlers are not getting are not getting results out of it because they're just not um, they just don't react to it as well because their creatine phosphate system isn't really adapted to it or they don't really use too much. Do you think that could also, with with wrestlers though, do you think that could also just be um, a function of the fact that they're manipulating their water level so much? Oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, we, I mean, that that's a whole different discussion that we could get into because, you know, it they're trying to, wrestlers try and cut weight so much that supplementing that creatine is actually hurting them in a way, especially their kidneys, because they're they're cutting all that water out, but that creatine's holding that water in their muscles and is not allowing them to, to cut more weight. It's just, and they end up getting more fatigued before they get on the mat, so it's counterintuitive. But um, I mean, for wrestlers that not, are not as cutting it, cutting as much weight, I usually like 
when I, when I talk to wrestlers about it, um, if they're supplementing creatine, I really don't recommend them cutting more than five pounds. But um, you see you see guys going into districts now that are cutting like 10 to 15 pounds. I mean, I can just talk from my own account. Cutting cutting 10 pounds going into districts is it's pretty harsh on the body. So like yeah. going off of ergogenic aids and stuff like that's definitely not a good thing. And I mean, we could always talk about caffeine too because caffeine's it's not going to allow water to get out of the system and everything like that like um our coaches used to tell us all the time to not like we keep our diet the same going into the end of the season and um keep caffeine and salt content low just to allow water to get out of the system faster stuff like that um i when i was in high school i supplemented um I supplemented with caffeine pills. That was basically my pre-workout for um, for swim meets. It's, it's you know we, you hear caffeine pills and you think it's this crazy thing, but caffeine pills have less caffeine content in them than do some of the uh, pre-workout supplements that are on the market. Um, caffeine uh, works extraordinarily well for swimmers. Um, at that age level, though, I would keep the dosage pretty low. I was taking like 200 milligrams of uh caffeine even now my pre-workout is essentially just coffee i'll have two cups of coffee in the morning i say two cups but they're 15 ounce cups so i'm having 30 ounces of coffee uh, as my pre-workout now but for a high school athlete um again this isn't the time to test anything new but caffeine supplementation if you've been doing it thus far is a good idea during the championship season um, that's not, I, I don't want to make any recommendations across the board, but with our athletes that don't have any kind of, you know, medical conditions or anything wrong with their heart or anything like that, caffeine is definitely something I'm, I'm more than comfortable talk, um, conveying to them as a good idea. Um, you know, the shorthand version of what caffeine does for, um, endurance athletes is basically a 10% bump in, uh, cardiovascular capacity and then you, you take something like unfortunately this is my date my every podcast ragging on academia about something but if you take something like caffeine and then you say well it's what caffeine does is it basically it allows for caffeine it essentially allows for the release of glycogen from the liver um, as one of its benefits is glycogen then of course enhances your ability to fuel mid and long duration activities so then people say well if it's fueling long duration activities it's not good for strength training well actually if you're strength training over the course of an hour-long workout that ultimately becomes something more akin to an endurance activity so your work capacity does go up on caffeine even for something like strength training but um for our swimmers, that is something we recommend. Um, creatine, uh, I tend to, I write for Swimming Science. I have written for them, uh, haven't in a, recently, but I still rely on Swimming Science with John Mullen from CORE in uh, Santa Clara, California. And um, they had a, a, res a research review on creatine and swimmers. Just getting back to creatine is something you were talking about with the wrestlers. Fortunately, Swimming is not a weight sport, so those kids can kind of weigh in at anything. And as long as it's, you know, a functional tissue, something like skeletal muscle, that 
that the weight is and not something like adipose tissue or fat. Um, weight can be good, um, but the research, it's really inconclusive on how well it works for swimmers. And that could be individual uptake. Um, I don't know what the hell is happening in the gut that some people respond to it better than others. Um, but um, I know some people respond extraordinarily well to it, even from a cognitive standpoint. Um, it's not as though creatine is just going into, it's not just going into muscle tissues, it's going into any kind of biologically active tissue in the body, so it can improve everything. Again, that's not something, I, it's not something I would make a recommendation for across the board, but with our swimmers and a lot of our athletes, it's usually something that I feel fairly safe recommending, especially for the guys that aren't afraid to put on a little bit more weight. Because there, there is a, there's a loading phase. It's not like a crazy amount of weight that you would gain from, from this creatine supplementation. But um, just going back to what, what John was saying before about um, keeping, keeping everything roughly the same, going into your taper for these swimmers. Make sure that you're comfortable with your training and your nutrition, and not trying to make a drastic change to drop your time at the end of the season. Because just like John said, if you make a big if you make a big change now, that could actually hinder your performance because um, you could get jitters with, like, say, like the, the beta alanine mm -hmm. or like too much caffeine intake. So make sure that you keep everything consistent and um, in your own comfort levels. I guess that's the best way I can say that. Yeah, definitely. So there are a lot of great things to do now, but it's not a time. It's not a time to add new things in. Um, realistically the time to start thinking about um what you're going to do at a championship meet is as soon as your your championship meet ended um one of the thing one of the ways that you should really think about this i know everyone kind of gets burnt out by the end of the swimming season but as as soon as that season ends you really need to start thinking about okay what happened at this meet while it's still fresh in your mind what what worked well what didn't work well what can I do to improve the outcome for the next championship meet that I'm buying for? You can you can even after PIAA districts say you're trying to taper for states, um, take notes of it. You can write it down on a piece of paper, have your coach look at it. Um, other than other than events, like how you actually swim in your events, uh, look at your sleep, your nutrition going up to it. Um, what was different? Um, maybe one day. Uh, you had homework going into, you were at a final going two days before your before your meet, and you missed a couple, um, couple hours of sleep because of that. Try and figure out how to stabilize everything to op optimize sleep and nutrition going into these meets. I know one of the things that that you kind of talk about, and one of the things that's common in um, collegiate exercise science circles is. Um, the perceived exertion scale, um, yes. this is Borg scale. Um, we just use the just RPE scale. RPE, yeah. rate of perceived exertion. Yes, because the Borg scale goes up to one. It I might be 30. I, I don't remember. Um, but there, there's a few different interpretations of the RPE scale that go 1 to 20. The one, the one that I use a lot is the 1 to 10 scale, Not 1 being the... Uh, the exercise that you're doing is basically just walking your car and 10 being maximal, like a, like a maximal squat or a maximal sprint to pull like a 50, like a 50 free or something like that. One of the things that I do that is a little bit different than that. I understand why people like that as a metric for 
understanding what they're doing or how much intensity they should be putting into something. But one of the metrics that I consistently record is something that I essentially came up with on my own, but I've used it for every workout for years now, is something called perceived exercise success. So after the end of a workout, I'll record uh, how well I think internally that that workout went, and I'll do it on a, on basically on a percentage scale from zero to 100. Usually, I'm not feeling so shitty that it's below 70, um, but what I'll do with that is say I've gotten three or four or five consecutive workouts where I was hitting maybe like 95 or even, dare I say, 100% on the perceived exercise success scale. Um, then what I could utilize with that is I record a, a series of variables and I'll see what the variables were in those workouts that led me to such a high success rate or perceived success. So did I get a certain amount of sleep? Was my sleep timed at a certain time that's unusual or was it consistent at such a time where I had more consistent workouts? Whatever the case is, or that I could even record, I could cross-reference days of the week to the perceived exercise success scale to determine what days I get my best workouts on, things like that. Um, so by doing that and having a lot of information that you could cross-reference against your own perception of how well your workouts went, um, you could determine what you need to do moving forward for um, uh Future workouts and yes. future for future uh, competitions. Right. But going going off of what you said with um, with RPE and how you interpreted that, I I do the same thing with my workouts, but I use I use that RPE scale. So um, with my workouts, you know, always trying to to increase the weights or increase the the performance uh, for for each um, exercise that I do. Now some exercises I'll go in there and, and some weight that I'm used to doing like an RPE like eight might be it might be a nine for the day and I I do the same I'll do the same thing after the workout to say okay what what variables changed for me for this workout that were different from my past workout that made it easier so um, yeah just like just like John was saying find find a way to be able to hold yourself accountable and be able to um, review or observe your performance and how you feel leading up to practice even practice to um, before these, these practices are very important leading up to these events. So being able to go in there and um, review how you did in these practices is very is is vital to how you taper into these into these league meets, these PIAA meets. And you know, a lot of this, some people might be pissed because I'll, a lot of this sounds like, well, this is great, but this sounds like shit that's going to help me out next year. So even just to kind of get down in the weeds a little bit more and talk about how we could what the meet day strategies are and what we should be doing the week leading up to the meet. Um, from a strength training perspective, a week out is essentially when we end every kind of rigorous strength training. So uh, we're recording this on February 24th, uh, which is a Thursday. Um, the 25th will be the last strength training workout that we have our swimmers do. Um, they won't be doing much at this point. Um, if we haven't seen a swimmer in a while, we won't reintroduce them to strength training at this point, obviously. Basically, we're tapering down our training uh, the same way they are in the pool. So the, what we do um, from a volume and intensity standpoint closely matches what's happening in the pool. And part of that is because this is actually 
a phenomenal mechanism for um, this doesn't this is in no way competitive with the demands of swimming but rather this is additive to it so this actually undoes a significant amount of the damage that is done in the pool like I was saying just that intensity of of kind of swinging that arm around um, stroke after stroke after stroke um, it creates some serious shoulder problems and some of the exercises some of the correctives we do in here the face pulls or um, any of the rotator cuff exercises that we're doing are going to actually not be an impediment because it's too much work for the swimmer it's not overuse it's actually kind of rebalancing all of the internal rotation work that they're doing however if they were in here doing similar stuff that's why i don't like sports specificity work because if we had a kid in here and we were trying to have them replicate a bunch of strokes with bands then it is overuse injuries and it's stupid for them to be in here doing that they might they might see a performance boost right off the bat maybe in the first few weeks but that repetitive strain exactly of the just the same motion over and over is just going to cause injury in the future right so yeah yeah it is, exactly exactly and then uh, so as they're training volume kind of dials back we dial back here too um the few sets and reps that they are doing we just focus on um basically we focus on force production um not really trying to make anyone tired just quality efforts just like they should be doing in the pool um so like i said we finish this week out with strength training and then next week leading into the district meet um which is when people would probably be hearing this the week leading up to districts is essentially only um stretches stretches mobility drills and activation drills some of the activation drills look almost like strength training but it's just kind of keeping muscles in check and making sure that they still have some kind of stimuli and that they're not they're not getting too weak um so that's kind of the way we think about that it's always good to keep the uh, the central nervous system primed and ready to go for those for those events leading up to it. it's not it's not good to have the athletes um sit down and just complete no exercise whatsoever leading up to a meet thinking that that's all going to be recovery work when they've been com completing they've been competing and practicing at such high intensity levels that this is going to be a complete opposite effect to their to their performance because they're so used to those high intensity workouts right so they do need some kind of stimuli from which that they can adapt and recover from if you just yeah if you just threw them on a couch they wouldn't have that um it's it's kind of harder to um so if from a swimming perspective say that you're talking about training volume and yardage if you have a swimmer that's coming from like a 6000 yard program um and that's what they're doing at their most intense what's actually better is to have them do and the taper is to have them do just a few thousand yards but have them do it still with race pace intensity but now because they're doing less yards they're actually more able to recover because they have less less training stimuli to overcome so their bodies are used to recovering from more they have to recover from less and the differential there is where that super compensation happens um so that's that that's a prime philosophy for how the taper works and that's the physiological underpinnings of of what makes a, a, a successful taper um men and boys for that matter tend to need a longer taper window especially when they're more heavily muscled um than females females tend to even in even in the sprint strokes tend to need a higher yardage program than than boys do um and i think part of that is just because of um neuromuscular efficiency 
kind of associated with testosterone, higher testosterone levels. Um, but um, with these with these girls, they develop so much faster, so their coordination is even is even better. So with these 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 boys, some of these activities that they're doing are not really efficient, as efficient as the as the girls are doing it, which ends up leading into like John said, more recovery time that that they need rather than the girls who can, like you said, do more yardage in their workouts. And that that goes the same in here too when we're ha we're having these athletes do these strength these strength programs. These, these girls can handle more more volume per se than than the boys can mm -hmm. for that ex exact reason. Yeah, if I even some of our high school girls, if I tried to do um, some of the volume of say squats that they need to do to get the same training effect, if I tried to do something like that, it would be it would it would crush me from a central nervous system efficiency perspective. Um, some of that goes into also weight moved. And I mean that's a, that's a totally yeah. different topic, sure. and uh, different different issues on like how how the central nervous system is taxed and, and whatnot. But again, that's that's a different topic. Another one thing that we'll do the week leading up to also, which we we don't do as much with other athletes, is breathing drills. Um, essentially, if you listen to something like the Postural Restoration Institute, um, one of their perspectives is that. Basically, we preferentially breathe into certain areas of our lungs. And by doing some of these breathing drills, we could actually enhance our lung capacity, not through training, but simply through mechanically pushing air into different parts of the lungs that we're not used to. Um, so if you imagine like your alveoli in your lungs just being balloons, um, certain balloons might, just because of your posture or whatever you're doing in a day-to-day basis, um, certain of the alveoli might actually have a preferential proclivity towards usage and some of the breathing drills we do like I like the cat position uh, breathing where you're kind of essentially trying to breathe into your lower back um, and by doing this one it helps activate that parasympathetic nervous system which helps facilitate better recovery in an athlete um, but what that also does is it enhances their their capacity for um, their cardiorespiratory capacity. So their actual lung volume can increase without actually making them do something super hard, but just by making them do some breathing drills. So this is a perfect week for doing something like that. It's an absolute perfect week to really focus on breathing drills. I might actually put out a uh, I might actually put out an Instagram post at the beginning of next week with some of our favorite breathing drills because that's something that you can introduce now with absolutely no uh, long-term uh, or, or even short-term consequences from introducing something like that. You can add that right into the end of a end of a workout or end of a practice. It's it's really not too taxing on the body whatsoever. Absolutely, and it induces recovery with that parasympathetic nervous system. And um, even. Even during meets, if an athlete is too nervous or kind of overly stimulated, each athlete has a different capacity for how much stimulation they can handle at a meet. Like some, some athletes will do better at a traditional dual meet uh, where they don't have so much pressure on them um, and they handle that environment better. Some athletes excel under pressure. Um, but for the athletes where it might be a little bit too much pressure, these breathing drills, like I said, because it, it facilitates it a and activates that parasympathetic nervous system to a greater degree. It it can actually kind of bring down that stress level back to a manageable back to a manageable degree. Um, 
so that can help athletes out so even though you know you want the this the sympathetic nervous system to be primed when they're when they're going into a big event um, more parasympathetic activation can actually put them in a better state ready to be um, ready to have a fast swim performance but and, that's very individualized but yeah very individualized and like you said the, the swimmers going into these events especially underclassmen that are these are their first meets um, if they're coming up say like lack of a better term too tense um, that could hinder their performance they could be a little slow off the off the, the dot of the platform I I'm still learning swimming but blocks, um, yeah, the blocks, blocks yeah. yeah good old wrestler here yeah. <laughs> but uh, um, off the blocks and have doing just doing that simple exercise the cat position um, just to, just breathing into into the lower back like that is just going to you said the lower back right yeah yeah. And there's there's a few different ones. There's a few different breathing drills that, like I said, I'll, I'll throw together um, I'll throw together a video for because they are such a great idea for definitely the week leading up to uh, a meet and depending on the specific athlete, potentially race day itself. Um, and then outside of that, we do have um, a few mobility complexes that we like to throw at our athletes um, even on race day. Um, you know, warm-up pools can get pretty crowded or even um, you can have a long time between a warm-up in the pool and your actual event itself where you could actually drop your uh, core temperature down too much just from being in a pool, especially if it's a pool you're not used to that might be colder than one that you're used to. Um, but doing all these, a lot of these land-based mobility drills can be great. Um, one of the limiting factors on the day of, of a, of a high-performance meet is um, the tech suit. A lot of the mobility drills that we do are going to be hindered by the tech suit. So you just kind of have to figure out what you can get away with and what you can't. Um, most people aren't going to break a tech suit with something like a any of our thoracic spine drills like quadruped T-spine rotations, quadruped pass-throughs, um, bench T-spines, sideline T-spine rotation or crossover. Um, that is going to be a lot of great stuff. I would even consider bringing a mini band or, um, like a red band from Elite F Westside Barbell or Elite FTS or, uh, the black band from Westside Barbell if the athlete's strong enough just to do pull apart, stay up too. Yeah, just work on those rotator cuffs and the, that, those, the traps, obviously keeping those traps nice and loose and, well, blood in there is going to keep, keep the, like, like you were saying earlier with that internal rotation. Yes. Keep, keeping the um, the pecs a little looser so that uh, so the athletes are yeah because if that fine. shoulder girdle is is too far forward you know if, if you if you try to bring if you turn your thumbs in towards each other and those shoulders jut forward that's essentially where a lot of athletes are trying to swim from that internally rotated position so doing those pull aparts the day of a meet which brings those shoulders back that puts those shoulders in much less of a compromised position where turnover, stroke turnover could go way up without the risk of uh, shoulder injury. So on top of, so on top of the, uh, the shoulder work and obviously the th thoracic spine work that you like to give to these, these swimmers, especially on meet days for mobility, um, what are some other things, especially for like the lower back or the hips? Because I know a lot of, I know the lower back and um, I would say like the hamstrings are used a lot in those in the kicking motions for for most of the swimming strokes. What what kind of mobility stuff do you like to give to the athletes for that? Uh, I like to see uh, saddle stretches, 
the rectus femoris gets way too tight. Um, and I see, I think that's, that's a pretty big problem. So a lot of people, you know, a, a little bit of, uh, information could kind of, uh, could be a problem. And, and some people think that static strips, people that have the wrong amount of information that, that got the just, the gist of something that is kind of right is that static stretches or can be, um, can be an impediment to performance, but there's also times where stretching the right thing can actually improve performance. Like stretching the rectus femoris prior to a passive stretch on the rectus femoris, something like a couch stretch actually will enhance a vertical jump because, uh, because it's a because it's antagonistic. So you kind of, by stretching that, you can turn it off. Um, which, so it's just, it's just optimizing. It's not because, because like you said, a lot of, uh, a lot of people get that wrong, stretching the whole body before, before exercising, when in reality, if they stretch the right muscles, if they optimize it, then they could increase performance. Yeah. Not just stretching for the sake of stretching, mm -hmm. however, um, which kind of goes into like, cause that's people stretch because they see other people stretching. So they do that, which goes into something else that we see swimmers doing for championship meets. So they want to do it and that's cupping. Um, my, my position statement on cupping is that we don't have enough information on it. Um, I would like to see, uh, I would like to see some analyses done on this, whether it's at, in the, in some kind of academic institutional setting, or even just from some high level performance coaches. Uh, I would just like to see more information on it. I don't think it's detrimental at all. I just don't know if cost is necessarily worth it or if that money could be better well served somewhere else if you want to do it there is nothing wrong with it i'd say worst case scenario you're not getting anything out of it but i don't know what the upside is it could be potentially pretty high um but you just see it a lot in swimming because these people are in swimsuits so people are more likely to see it um, so people are more likely going to try to replicate or emulate it just like, you know, Michael Phelps did it. So everyone tried to emulate Michael Phelps. Um, same thing in, uh, like in volleyball in the Olympics with kinesio tape, because they're showing more skin, people see the kinesio tape. So then people want to do that more similar kind of thing, but I don't necessarily think it's a huge hindrance, but much like massage, I would try to give yourself at least, a, a, at least 72 hours of recovery time prior to a championship meet between the cupping or massage and the actual meet itself, because you could potentially get some soreness from that. Um, that's not at all uncommon to be sore from that. And to go in that day where you're trying to feel like your best and you feel soreness, that's, that's even from a mental perspective, that's not going to be helpful. Again, this goes into adding in new stimuli that that's different from you know, from a normal routine. So adding adding in cupping or like a deep tissue massage a day or two before before a big meet like this could, as John said, induce some kind of soreness and hinder performance. So um, big a big thing for me especially is try to keep everything um, routine and routine sleep uh, your recovery which will obviously sleep and nutrition into that. And along with um, stretching and um, mobility modalities and your practices as well. Yeah, that's one, one of the things I actually, sorry, I, I wanted to talk to you about this. It doesn't, ne didn't necessarily need to be on the podcast, but um, makes a good record of it. 
is one of the things, one of the variables I'd actually like to record on, um, on our, our training programs with athletes from now on is sleep. Because whether we utilize that information or not, just to have that listed out, I mean, what gets measured gets improved. So for us to have that and for athletes to see what their sleep patterns actually are, not just like, so well, again, in the, as an example, you want to see what their sleep patterns actually are, not what they think they are. You know, same thing when, if you have someone come in here for an assessment and you ask them how many times per week they work out, they'll, they'll inevitably say five or six, but they don't train that much. They just, that's how much they think they could potentially train on a good week if they have all the variables right. But if you looked at their timeline long enough, it's usually like, you know, three or four. Three. Yeah. On, the, on the top end, yeah. it's usually three. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. You're 100% right. And if people think they train three days a week, they're probably down. So we're in like the one to two threshold. Um, but yeah, that, that is the sleep variable is, is crucial. And this last week, when we are trying to taper an athlete, Tapering happens through recovery. Recovery happens through sleep. Um, the days leading up to the meet keep caffeine content extraordinarily low, especially because if you are going to take caffeine the day of the meet, you want that to be as effective as possible. If you're desensitized to it, all it's going to do is essentially keep you up. It's not going to be much of a much of a boon to performance. Um, alternatively not taking a lot the few days before enhances sleep quality. So it's a good trade-off to kind of minimize caffeine consumption beforehand, utilize it the days of the meat as needed. You're almost tapering the caffeine consumption in that sense. Right, yeah, which definitely helps. Um, otherwise, just to rapidly kind of go through nutrition strategies, you don't want to introduce anything too, too crazy the day of or the day before, but you do want to act for meat day. Performance nutrition is somewhat different than conventional health nutrition. Usually with um, health, I try to um, tell athletes that they should do more things either fasted or, you know, while they're training to just use water as much as possible instead of, um, something with sugar in it, like a sugary sports drink. Um, but for something like a competition, it's a whole different animal. Then you kind of want to keep those sh the sugar level pretty primed. Um, a pretty consistent flow of electrolytes and sugar is probably a good idea. Um, Fast-acting carbs, um, fruits um, contain a lot of that, as does some of the sports bars. Um, that's how I think of that. One of the things that we introduced recently that I liked and I've done a few times since, I've actually kind of used it when I'm camping now even, is liquid IV. Um, the sodium level in that is great. Um, uh, I, th I think that's a good product. I don't think people need that on a regular basis because of the sugar content, but for something like a, a meat day, I think it's a great idea. Yeah, just the, the, the liquid IVs make a huge difference, especially especially on meat days. It's not something that you would take every day. So it's sort of like like liquid IVs seen sort of like a Pedialyte or um, it, if I remember correctly, Gatorade introduced a uh, Prime Performer cover series mm -hmm. uh, a few years back. I'm not sure if they still if they still have that available, but the recover series, the, the gel series that they had, um, that's that's a good example of what the liquid IV is, is like. That's not something you would you would take every day. A similar on a similar note, something I wouldn't take every day, but something that isn't bad the day of, 
is something like uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Um, again, I, I try to stay off of them as much as possible. I don't advocate for them, but um, that if there's any day to do them, it's it's that day. You don't want to be achy. You don't want to be anything. They're not good for your health, but they can definitely help performance. Um, there's a lot we covered here, but I think that's a good amount of information. Essentially, don't change too much now. Mobility drills all week leading up with breathing drills. I'll try to make a companion um, a companion post on Instagram to this that kind of covers some of the breathing drills I like, most of which are from the Postural Restoration Institute. They're worth a follow as well. Um, eat healthy and get enough sleep. That's a wrap on today's episode. You can find more about the Human Advancement Podcast and Ruthless Performance on RuthlessPerformance.com. I specifically recommend that you head to our online education tab where you can learn more about self-improvement, the physiology of performance, practices for enhanced wellness, and more. You can view all podcast episodes directly on our website at podcast.ruthlessperformance.com. I also recommend that you follow us on both Instagram and Twitter with the handle at RuthlessPerform. If you have any questions for our monthly Q&A or wanted to learn more about training with Ruthless Performance, including information on our athlete development training, injury prevention and corrective exercise protocols, personal training, or for consults or assessments, you can get in touch with us online at ruthlessperformance.com contact or via email at info at ruthlessperformance.com. The human advancement theme was written by Bernie Wallace-Savage.